To see examples of what we talked about on this episode, along with further information, go to bunchofdorks.com. Welcome everyone to Two Dimension Podcast. The comic book podcast with no direction. What's up, everybody? You know the song, you know the voice. It's your boy, Rook. Joining me, as always, is the grease in the wheels, the guy who gets it done. It's Mr. Don Moore. The pebble in the shoe. The flying (laughs) ointment. (laughs) The pee in the bed. (laughs) That was was not a urine joke. That was the pee in the print, the princess and the pee joke, you know. Get your minds out of the gutter, people. (laughs) Don, it's just (laughs) us, buddy. Yeah, we had a guest scheduled tonight, and then he just called me feeling bad. He's sick, which I'm sorry. He's hoping we can do it another time. Of course we can. So anyway, uh, you're stuck with Rook and myself, so I just heard a bunch of people click. (laughs) (laughs) That's their problem. Uh, Yeah, if you haven't heard a bunch of people click yet, you're going to hear them when I go off tonight. (laughs) Yeah, Rook said he's got something to say, so let's, uh, let's have it. Oh, boy, man. Uh, So we sit here currently on January 18th, 2023. We are in the midst, those of us on the tabletop role-playing game community, we are in the midst of just all-out outrage at the moment. So let me, uh, let me, you know, we like to talk history of comics, so let's talk a little history of tabletop role-playing. Uh, many, many years ago, this lovely little game was developed called Dungeons and Dragons. No, I know. You all know that one because I talk about it too much. But just recently, uh, the company that owns Dungeons and Dragons is Wizards of the Coast, or WotC for short, who is owned by Hasbro. Well, some genius executive decided that, and they were quoted, and it cast across the internet, that Dungeons & Dragons is highly under-monetized. So what does that mean for the D&D player? Well, we found out. What we found out is that Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro executives' plan was to basically strip away the rights of third-party creators and start making them pay. 25% of their income. That's 25% on $750,000. And I get it. That sounds like a lot of money here, but it's not. When you add in ideas like publishing, you got to pay artists, you got to pay writers, you got to, you know, get it printed, you got to get it shipped, you got to get, you got to all this different stuff. It is not uncommon for a D&D Kickstarter to hit those kinds of goals. So why is everybody outraged over 25%? Some of you may be asking, doesn't seem like a lot. Well, that's off the top. That's not off of your profit. That's off of the total that you make. So therefore, if you're planning on a book making X amount of money, you have to plan on it making 25% more of that just to give Wizards of the Coast their cut. There's a lot of other things involved in this that I'm not going to go into because we could be here for hours. But basically what Wizards of the Coast said 
was that third party publishers are relinquishing their rights to their properties. As soon as they're published, you had to sign a you had to sign a contract. So once they're published, if Wizards likes what you did, well, they're just going to take it from you and give you no royalties. They're also going to do things like cancel contracts with 30 days notice. They're a bunch of different things that they have planned. It all came down to a lot of crap. I mean, it just it, it shows an absolute tone deafness to the tabletop community and the third party publishers that make this game fantastic and amazing. These people are doing stuff that Wizards of the Coast would have never thought to do. Wizards is not brave enough to do things like combat wheelchairs or to do adventures into dark, grim, dark settings. Uh, I mean, l let's face it. Curse of Strahd is not a grim, dark setting. It's a mildly entertaining horror at that, but not grim, dark. Not in my opinion, at least. So where do we stand now at this point in time? Well, Wizards came out and claimed that this new open gaming license, which you'll hear me refer to as OGL, WotC says that the OGL is just a draft. It wasn't meant to be out there in the world. We were just testing the waters with it. Mm. Well, Don, have you ever heard of anybody testing the waters with a contract that needs to be signed and you only had about a week to two weeks to sign it? That's not a draft document. We all know it. Watsy, you're lying to us. <laughs> and the community knows. The community has responded by starting up the D&D &D Be Gone campaign where around $40,000 worth of subscribers to D&D &D Beyond have canceled their subscriptions. Fantastic. Very good job, everybody. But let's not stop there. Let's make sure Wizards knows what we want. We want the original OGL not changed. We want you to stop trying to create a monopoly out of the tabletop role-playing community. It is not your community. It's ours. We can exist without you. You cannot exist without us. You know, that's, all I got. that's it. That's all I got to say. That's something um I didn't know that was going on. I, I I see Wizards of the Coast on comic book store windows sometimes. I didn't know what it was. Um, but, you know, the only thing I can relate to this was home video um, in the late 70s. It used to be a blank video cassette tape to record off of was 20 bucks in like 1978 money. And if you ever bought a pre-recorded movie, I remember I was at a record store um, in 1980, and they had uh, the Flash Gordon movie, which I love, the Popeye movie with Robin Williams. They were 125 to 150 dollars each for a videotape, and um, the store had them in a little tiny lock case. But it wasn't until what 86 when Top Gun came out on video, um, or 87, but it was 14.95, which was unheard of. And after that, movies started coming out, and you could buy them for you know 14.95 up to 20 bucks. 
but the movie industry fought home video tooth and nail and they were trying to make sure you couldn't record with the recorders they were just view only high high money because they didn't want to take money away from the theaters and and put the movies out it was the government that relaxed the standards and um that changed everything uh, the movie industry found out people still went to the movies and then rented the videos later bought the videos even if a movie didn't do well at the theaters it did well at home video a lot of times it completely changed the environment right and um sometimes what you're describing is kind of the same thing but what they're trying to do is reel in control and they're looking at the cash flow but the problem is if they strip the community of what's been going on it's gonna hurt them i mean it already oh. has because you know as i said the community does not need them they need us we have lots of other games out there that can be played we have pathfinder we have dungeon crawler we have vampire the masquerade we have dozens of games and this idiotic attempt has actually caused a surge in publishers that publish pieces for fifth edition to say okay that's the way you want to play it. We're going to go make our own game system then. That's what I see. Yeah. So it, it is completely backfired on them, you know. And I, I'm so proud of the tabletop community and what they're doing, and it's it's absolutely wonderful to see the community come out like this and just be like, nope, we're not doing this. We're not agreeing to this. We're not going to allow it. And I want to actually take a second. And thank Linda Codega uh, is the writer for Gizmodo that broke this article. Uh, I'm following them on Twitter now. Uh, Linda is absolutely just fun to fun to follow um, and is just in it. So uh, if you want a good follow on Twitter when it, when it comes to tabletop role playing, Linda Codega, definitely go check them out. That rolls off your tongue too. That's a nice, nice name. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, very, very cool person. So yeah, fun, very fun to, uh, fun to interact with on, on, on Twitter. So, uh, you know, it's, it's shameful for them to do this because they've tried it once before and fourth edition, I wasn't around during fourth edition. I was busy with life things and, I didn't get to play it, but everybody tells me it was horrible. Uh, they there was only like a hundred books, maybe, in fourth edition. Three point five, the edition before that had an open gaming license and tons of support from the community. Fifth edition, tons of support for the community. Uh, tons and tons of support for the community in fifth edition. So, for some pencil pushing executive who doesn't even understand how the game functions never mind how the community functions to make these decisions and try and force out the people who are responsible for the game having the popularity it does and yes i'll argue with people that claim things like stranger things critical role look they do they do a portion for the community as well but 
you're telling me you really think that those things are the only thing driving this fan base? No, they're not. Because if all we had was the was the <coughs> the source books of D&D 5th edition, people are underrepresented in these in 5th edition of all different walks of life. So to pro, to get the representation, third-party publishers came in and went, "Here, here's a lot of really cool stuff to play with." And you know, a lot of them give away stuff online for free or samples of things for free. So it, it's 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 just preposterous for Watsi and Hasbro to think that they can get away with this and the community won't push back. Uh, I myself personally have already been over to Paizo's website, who is the publisher of Pathfinder, and purchased the beginner's box for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Uh, Paizo has also came out and said that they are going to be releasing what is called Orc, uh, which is going to be a open gaming license that's for the community. They're not even going to own it. They're going to put it into the ownership of a law firm so that it cannot be altered by one individual party or gaming company. Bravo, Paizo. Uh, mm. Once again, Paizo stepping up and doing the right thing. Uh, I really, I really admire Paizo, and I think that, you know, from what I've seen, the people who play Pathfinder and the people who work there are very open and, and uh, welcoming to the community coming towards them right now, which is a tidal wave of people. <laughs> Could you explain the differences between like the game Dungeon and Dragons compared to Orc and some of the others? So, uh, I cannot, I can't compare Pathfinder because I've actually never played it. I've never even looked at one of the books. Um, you know, uh, I just never got around to it. Um, I've only been back in, uh, tabletop, uh, gaming for mm, seven, eight years now. Um, and I was so centrally focused on D and D because it was, out there it was very popular a lot of people playing it all my friends that wanted to uh to play were playing D, &D. so um i do have one one individual who's in who's in invited me to a pathfinder game and i'm going to be taking him up on that can't wait uh but overall dungeons and dragons is a d20 system uh it uses a d20 to figure out certain aspects of combat and other abilities of the character and it uses various other polyhedral dice to do weapons, to do spells, to do et cetera, et cetera. Other gaming types, like let's say Vampire Masquerade, uses a D10 system. So that's uh, a pool of 10-sided dice. Um, sh uh, oh, wow. I'm, uh, I'm blanking out now. Uh, all the different games I played. Paranoia, I don't remember what dice system it used because I haven't played that in... Oof, 20 plus years uh shadow run uses a d6 system um so it's a lot about the game mechanics how it's run um the open gaming license allows us to write content for a game specifically D, &D and using its foundation and build our own building on top of it so that's that's a best comparison i can make um 
there are the game systems out there that allow this as well with their open gaming licenses, but none as popular as D&D. And that, that's really where a lot of this stems from, is the popularity is so high right now that executives looked at it and went, huh, little twisty of the must, evil mustache, how can I get more? Uh, you know, basically, I feel like they attempted to create a monopoly and the community said, no, you don't. <laughs> Well, yeah, they don't realize. You always have that period where they're always saying, we're, we're missing the cash flow here. We're not monetizing everything. But again, like I said, sometimes you're missing out on what it is and you may destroy it. Um, have you ever played a game where it wasn't based off any any existing system, like somebody came up with one on their own? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've played games where, you know, the decision making was left up to a deck of cards, a, a flip of a coin. Mm-hmm. Um, Vampire Masquerade, um, actually, the the live action role playing versions of that uh, talk about coin flips, rock, paper, scissors, uh, things like this. So there's there's game systems out there for all kinds of different people. Um, and I've, I've met people who write their own game systems over the year. I myself, hi, everybody. I tried to write a game system. It sucked horribly. That why it, that's why it's not out there. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was back a long time ago. Um, you know, and, and a lot of this comes, uh, those of you who listen to the D and D, uh, centric episode with Mojo, Mojo's encouraged me to actually try and write a module, which is a, a self-contained adventure book for uh, D&D regarding what we've played over the last six years together. Um, I was seriously thinking about it. I, I, like I sat down and I was seriously starting to go, OK, how do I take six years and create a module? And I, I was – I had it in my head that I was going to take a run at it. Not now. Definitely not now. Um, you know, it's very discouraging. Um, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to doggy paddle through these waters, never mind swim in them. So I'm going to keep writing for me and my friends and, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they will. But basically right now, um, I will not, as I sit here in my Dungeons and Dragons pajama pants, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will not be buying any official Wizards of the Coast merchandise. I will not be purchasing any Hasbro merchandise. I will not be going to see the movie. None of it. They can take it all and stick it in a corner because it's not interesting to me right now. Um I'm more than happy to spend money with people like Paizo, Cobalt Press, um, you know, various others. Those are the two that pop to the top of my mind uh, at the moment. You know, these these are these are companies with, you know, with real people that really need these jobs. And, you know, you can't take this away just because, oh, well, you know. I think I can, so I'm just going to give it a shot. Well, guess what? You can't. And the biggest part part of this is the fact that 
Wizards tried to play a game of, well, we don't know what the original intent of the open gaming license was and future products such as virtual tabletops and all this other things. Well, it's not like we're talking about a document that was written in the 1600s, okay? We don't need to translate original intent. The original writers of the open gaming license are still alive and well. Oh, and they work for the competition over at Paizo. Well, the the guest we had a couple of times, uh, the comic book series Crit. Yes. Would this affect these guys? Because are they? So, actually, it's interesting you say that because that was something I kept looking for to try and make sure that they were okay. They have said that this is not going to affect them. And I really don't see how it could. Um, they are, you know, they're not... As far as I understand, talking to the crit guys, they're not using certain terminology that is considered copyright by Wizards of the Coast. I got you. Yeah, that's so, what I was wondering about. Yeah, yeah. The guys at Crit should be perfectly fine. And, uh, you know, the they have they have come out and made a statement about it. So uh, we can oh. still anticipate seeing more issues of Crit. Um, I'm eagerly awaiting my Kickstarter. My wife's going to kill me when that comes <laughs> Well, when when they were on the first time, that's when they was asking, because the comic book, if you haven't heard the episode, we there's a series called Crit, and it's basically a, a group of friends that are playing a role-playing game that they've made up. And... The comic is from recordings of that show. The comic is actually quite nice. What I liked was, like life, you didn't know where it was going to go. I mean, there's in, when I say there's a lot of comics I've read in, in prose books where that happens. But this one was more because it wasn't just one, one line. There was relationships with different characters, um, obstacles with different characters, just like you would find in a real-life situation. And I was just asking, you guys are playing the game. Are there any plans to, you know, put something out so other people could play it if they were interested in? But that's what I was curious about. Now, if they tried to release a module for that, would that be affected? Uh, yes. Now, if if the now I I I think okay. So um, this is without talking to the guys from Crit, but. Theoretically, if they were to try and release a module based in 5e under this original quote unquote draft bullcrap of the o OGL, they would have been affected. They uh, they would have had to register themselves as a third party creator and basically open their books up to Wizards of the Coast. So mm. it's it, it, it's very concerning. Uh, what they're trying to do they're they're very much trying to make a monopoly and say this is allowed this isn't allowed well why isn't this allowed well because we say so and you know they keep using the word draft even on today's press release they use the word draft and again i have spent some time uh dealing with legal issues uh nothing criminal but 
I have never seen a draft document presented to me that required a signature. Now, you don't call it a draft when it requires a signature. And you only, and they tried to send this thing out during the holidays at the end of December to all these people. As far as I know, I'm not aware of any third-party creators that actually signed it. And, of course, anybody who did is under an NDA, so they can't even talk about it anyway. Mm. But now, um, honestly, if if this kind of crap continues, I can see people like the guys from Crit, um, Critical Role, um, people, you know, people who do all these different podcasts, live play podcasts, jumping over to Pathfinder. Um, for those of you who don't know, Critical Role actually started as a Pathfinder game. Mm. Wouldn't be hard for those guys to jump back into it. Mm. Uh, and Critical Role is arguably one of the most popular and most public D&D connected products out there in the world at the moment. So if they just say bye bye Watsi and hello Paizo, um, Paizo's to benefit and Watsi's just kind of left in the dust. So you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, look, I'm not one of these boycott everything forever, immediately start playing a different game and refuse to touch Dungeons and Dragons ever again. The people I play with have been playing Dungeons and Dragons for so long now. And until I get those Pathfinder books and get a chance to read them and learn them, I can't switch them over to Pathfinder. And some of them might not want to play Pathfinder. Mm. So I will continue to play Dungeons and Dragons with the material I have and not purchase anything else until all this works out. If it works out in the negative, no problem. Somebody's going to have to just cave and switch to Pathfinder with me. But, you know, I'm willing to hold execution until I get the final bit of evidence. We'll see what happens. Hey everybody, it's Rook, and I just wanted to put an update onto this story with the D&D OGL. Today is January 27th, and they've released a statement saying that they will not try and deauthorize the OGL. Everybody's very happy right now, let me tell you. Uh, Twitter is just on fire celebrating this, and I'm really, really happy about the future of D&D and tabletop gaming altogether. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the episode. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, here's a music break. Yeah. Okay. 
You can hear our most recent 20 episodes on iTunes. If you would like to hear our older episodes, you can find them on our blog. Just go to bunchofdorks.com and click, click on the Cyclops. Your Dimension can be found on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe, rate, leave a review, tell a friend, or like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Okay. That's a song from the new album by Steve Robinson and Ed Vitale. It's called Kickstart. It's Ed's song. Um, recently, we played Life on the Trampoline, which I hope you really enjoyed that earworm, and now you got another one. Anyway, it's um, you can buy it off Bandcamp, which I've done, and it's linked on the blog. All right. Um, I'm bringing it up. I'm ranting, man. What are you reading? Help me. Save me from it. <laughs> okay, I'm... I'm apprehensive to bring this up because it's the complete opposite of what my friend has always gone on about. Brooke has left mainstream comics. He's he's fully Kickstarter. Kickstarter is actually really unique. Uh, a lot of a lot of different stuff. And one thing Rook said was, I really don't care what the the big two are doing, and I don't want to see facsimiles. But what are you about to show me? We have oh, wait, are these reprints? We're, uh, you, we yeah. have Amazing Spider-Man meets Fantastic Four and Fantastic Four. Am I looking at a reprint? Because those are crispy looking covers. Here. Yeah, they they are crispy. The first one is um the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And it even has all the ads. Oh. They I mean, reprinted it with the original ads. Everything is as it was when it first came out. Oh, how cool is that? Letter pages. I mean, everything. And they're cleaned up. They're not just, you know. They're not just rescanned. They've been cleaned up, legible. Now, I was at the store and I saw this amazing Spider-Man number one. And Marvel... If you listen to the show, you know, I really love the Marvel Treasury editions they did in the, the early to mid-70s. They were tabloid size, they were $1.50, they were square bound. The first one was Amazing Spider-Man, which when I was a kid, I, I was 12, I thought Spider-Man was the greatest. You know, I just loved him. Find and, me a 12-year-old um, that doesn't think he's Yeah, I think that's a, a period, is 12 years old, because I've never stopped liking Spider-Man, I guess, but I never bought the books except when I was around that age. Um, but he, um, the Treasury Edition 
it had it started with Steve Ditko. You had John Romita. Had a John Basima story. Had um, a Ross Andrews story. Who was doing it at the time? But you know, it had all kinds of stuff that had come out. And um, it had a story that Jack Kirby drew of Spider-Man meeting the Fantastic Four. Well, I thought it was the first issue. You know. Um, anyway, I saw this. I thought, you know, I don't know. It'd be kind of neat to buy. So I bought it. <laughs> I've never read anything in this this book at all. I've never seen it in any reprint. <laughs> it says two great feature link Spider-Man thrillers. Um, extra added to, to, uh, attraction. Spider-Man meets the Fantastic Four as the chameleon strikes. It's a different story. And, um, so there's two stories in this book? Yeah, two stories. I mean, these things are packed. Uh, you know, i got to admit, I, as many times as I've seen that in stores and everything, I've never yeah. actually read that particular book. I didn't realize it was two different stories in there. I thought, yeah, it's two stories. Uh, these are packed. Dallas always says when he reads old reprints, even 70s reprints, he says, I forgot how much fun it was to read these. Because... They weren't expanded story. I don't know what you call it, expanded storylines. Where now it'll take you know four to six to twelve issues to tell one story. Mm-hmm. Used to be it would be one issue, and maybe the issues would connect. But Marvels usually did, but one issue was good. You know, I'm, like I always bring this up. Everybody's collection was kind of Swiss cheese. You'd have a a few random issues of whatever title, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Spider-Man, but you didn't have them all. Nobody, I didn't really know very many people that had them all um, until the later 70s. But yeah, this one is two stories. A lot of reading, I enjoyed them both. They're both Steve Ditko stories, but I've never seen them. Um, So I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much that I'm always looking for them. Now, the next one, again, is the Fantastic Four, but it's where um, the Black Panther shows up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is uh, Fantastic Four 52. Now, I have these in the Marvel Masterworks, and we've talked about them on old old past episodes. Um, but it's, and like I said, I saw it. I didn't even hesitate. I wanted to buy it because Fantastic Four is probably my favorite run of comics when Jack Kirby did them. I just think they're unique. And, um, but I will say as much as I enjoyed it in the masterworks, it's a different thing when you have one solid issue. I mean, it's, it's a lot of story. Uh, this book is thick and, um, I, I can't stress Jack Kirby's run on fantastic form. They discovered the inhumans. Yes. Then, then the, the the Galactus trilogy happened. I think it was issue 48, 49, and 50. And then in 52, they meet the Black Panther. You got the Inhumans, Galactus and Silver Surfer, and the Black Panther, all within, what, 10 issues? That's, un- yeah, that's unheard of. I mean, That's a lot of history going right yeah. there. And seeing that, most of Marvel Comics came... Out of Fantastic Four, it was a flagship title. It's not anymore, but yeah. most of what Marvel was built on came out of this. And 
I, I said this in the past. I really don't want to retread, but I'm going to bring this up. I read this years ago, and I was really surprised. They go to Wakanda, and it's always a marvel. They're invited by the Black Panther. And they go, and all they see is jungle. And then they discover the city, which is just incredible, but it's hidden in the jungle, which I thought was neat. And Marvel comics are never friendly. When you meet up with somebody, they're trying to kill you. Yeah. You know, everybody fights. And the Black Panther is hunting them. And uh, Wyatt Wingfoot, Johnny's uh, college roommate, is there with him. And he's the one that's kind of stops it, you know, and helps them out. And then Black Panther basically just brought up it was a test and, you know, this and that. But Jack Kirby, all the, the, the residents of Wakanda, the Black Panther, they're really good looking people, but he didn't draw white people and color them brown. I mean, they're African people. They have the characteristics and features of African people, you know, even if they're idealized. And I was really surprised. And they're talking, as they should, to Prince T'Challa, that, you know, they're speaking to him as, as a sovereign. Right. And he's a perfect human. He's noble. He's smart. He's, he's super. And, I mean, you want to be like this guy. Yeah. Well, that All, was the appeal of T'Challa, you know, yeah. and, and continues to be his appeal in the books is the fact that he is – a down-to-earth, he's he's this great king, but he's such a down-to-earth person. Yes. And, and I think that's part of what made Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman's uh, portrayal of T'Challa so fantastic, is that this was, a, that he showed that in just simple scenes, that this man, he was a noble person, but very human. Yes. And that's how he was in the comic. And he was even that way in the comics after Jack Kirby. In Avengers, when John Buscema was drawing it, I remember at one point he was teaching, you know, in New York, at a, a college or probably high school. But he was great. You know, when you're, you're a kid reading this, you're thinking, man, this guy is something. Um, but anyway, I'm reading all this, and I, I looked at the date of when this was published, 1966. Well, I was on the world at that time. I was only four years old, but we had left Texas and we're living in Lawton, Oklahoma. And, you know, we lived in a rural area in Texas. And all of a sudden we're in this small city. And I remember my dad, my dad would come home. You know, my mom was a housewife. And it was always, Patsy, that was the biggest thing I ever saw, you know, and my dad, um, he was a technician. He repaired machines. You know, he was repairing cash registers. Later, it turned out to be computers and that kind of stuff. But he would go around company to company. But his cash registers, he'd go fix the cash registers of business. Well, I guess at one point, he went to, um, I guess it was a gentleman's club. <laughs> and, um, he was saying, all these people around, and they had a go-go dancer. But she wasn't dancing. She was just standing there just it was just kind of showing her arms fling <laughs> a go-go dancer you know they had plastic go-go bracelets for kids you know that was you know the go-go was the big thing but oh yeah anyway one time he was talking about 
there was a municipal park that had a pool. Uh, we used to, we, I never went to the pool, but we used to go play at the park all the time. Um, everybody went. They, it was, it was a park that was used all the time. And Dad was telling me, or telling Mom, I was listening. But there was a bunch of black men marching. And Dad went by and he said, "What are you guys doing?" And they said, "We're we're going to go swim at the pool at the park." Okay, could we? Yeah. I'd ask Dad, could we go do that too? And um, Dad said, "Patsy is the biggest thing." They were just walking here and they kept singing, "Freedom, freedom." Well, that was the civil rights going on. Yeah. That was the world. And saying this, I I was completely isolated from that. I was a kid, a four-year-old kid at the house, but I'd hear these stories my dad would tell. He sees stuff on the news. This came out in 66, which is all this stuff was happening when I was there. That's kind of unthinkable because if you ever look at any old comics and people are always cringing at it, they're always done like they're really stereotyped hillbilly kind of, you know, unsophisticated people uh, they're they're not nice um and when i say this um the spirit will Eisner's spirit ebony which i'll be honest i loved ebony ebony was a stand-up person now he did talk with that what they call minstrel speaking and you know he wasn't a good looking person um and Will Eisner said always had a trouble i don't think that they should change those old stories i think people should see how people were treated but i mean i i did like ebony i when i think of ebony i i i would like to hang with ebony you know and the spirit did respect him he wasn't talking down to him but that's one of the better ones but there are ugly stuff this was nothing the black panther was the most awesome character and continued to be the most awesome character anyway it's nice to have one issue i'm um on one of the comic sites, they're showing Marvel is going to do a facsimile of Strange Tales, the one, the first one Jim Starlin did of Adam Warlock. I have the actual comic, but it looks like somebody tied it to the uh, back of a car bumper and drove down a, a gravel road for about 160 miles. Ah. It's been read so many times, I, I can't ever let go of it, but I... I it's supposed to come out in April. I want that. I'd like a really nice copy of that one on good paper. But anyway, I've seen some others. I wasn't interested. They're not all um, like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby stuff. They're later ones. I DC's doing them too. There was a Wonder Woman that um, I can't remember who drew it, but Vince Coletta was the inker, which <laughs> isn't my favorite. But I saw that, I thought, well, that's kind of neat, but I didn't pick them up. But anyway, they're out there. Um, I don't see them often, but they're worth picking up. Yeah. Unless you're Rook and, and you don't want to see those anymore. <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned Ebony from the Spirit. And, <clears throat> you know, while the Spirit interaction with the character was that of someone interacting with an actual person... The original drawing of Ebony was <laughs> extremely racist. Yeah, it was. I, you know, um, future future issues uh, of Spirit, those that have done been done in modern times. Um, thank 
goodness, change that and make him look like a yeah. real human being. Yeah, and yeah. and I like that as well. I was really happy to see that. Um, here's the funny thing. I don't think Will Eisner meant that. And I know they said he had trouble trouble with it later on when people started bringing this up. But here's, here's the one that kind of throws it. You know, Will Eisner is of Jewish persuasion. And um, he... Um, he did a book Dallas talked about again on a really old past episode called Fagin the Jew. And it's from the story Oliver Twist. You know, Fagin the Jew was the one that, you know, was getting Oliver in that factory. And Will Eisner wrote basically, um, I guess, a sideways prequel to it. It told Fagin's story. And it, it connects to the Oliver Twist story, but. At the end, Will Eisner talked about it and explained why he did it and how the the, the Hebrew people were were shown. And then he had old um, old print pieces of um, how Jews were protected uh, shown. Well, I said they're not really so bad. But then it showed a couple of Jewish textile merchants selling stuff to a Gentile woman. Well, these guys had long noses. They look kind of sinister, which again, you see drawings and maybe it's just the person's style. Then it shows the Gentile women are selling it to and they look like Musha prints. You know, they're they're idealized, really beautiful women. And I thought, oh, I see. Basically, he made them look like ogres or orcs from Lord of the Rings. They didn't even look like people. Yeah. And I thought, and that- well, I can see that. And that's one thing we bring up about Ebony is, well, Eisner felt that way about Fagin the Jew, but what about Ebony? But I, again, that's what brings up the Black Panther to me blows my mind because it's Jack Kirby and Stan Lee thought completely different out of the, out of the, the, the way they were shown. Yeah. And, um, well, and I think that's a feather in their cap. Um, which I don't give Stan very many, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's an unfortunate truth that the comic book industry did not change until change was demanded. Yeah. Um, there were characters represented for far too long in these racist stereotypes. Um, you know, I, I for one am, you know, I see no reason to change the old books because we need to know this. We yeah. need to see where where it came from. We need to be offended <laughs> to know <laughs> how far we've moved. You know, and, and so you know, even in a reprint of the spirit uh, of the of the original books, you know, I don't wish them to dr- redraw Ebony because they no. people need to see this. They need to understand it. Yes, and 100%. Um, Popeye, the old Fleischer Popeye cartoons, oh, were yeah. probably my very favorite animation ever. And I got the DVD sets. Um, I cherish them. I watch them all the time. Um, but they start out saying the, these films are a product of their time. Yeah. And they say there, there will be some. Um, the first first Popeye cartoon was Betty Boot meets Popeye. And they have characters I never thought about. But 
your characters are little animals, you know, dogs and stuff like that. Oh, that's black people. That's how they portrayed them in the whole stuff. Really? That yeah, in, you know, original? Wow, I didn't. <clears throat> you know, Mickey Mouse and Felix the Cat were actually kind of minstrels. Yeah. I I was shocked because I love those characters. I, I love the old white face Mickey Mouse, you know, with the skinny spaghetti arms. That's my favorite. And there were a lot of those kind of characters besides Mickey Mouse and Felix and Oswald the Luck, Lucky Rabbit. All those characters, Terry Toons had them, but they were supposed to be minstrels. Uh, the minstrel shows were something, I guess, really popular in, I don't know, 20s, 40s. Um, but it's basically white people dressing up and acting like black people um, and not flattering. Yeah, but, what they what they thought black people yeah. behaved like because they, they didn't have enough exposure. They didn't they didn't have enough interaction to, to see them as people. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that Black Panther really did well is it showed a person of color in a. Not only was it a superhero, but he was a king. Yes. You know, and and he just carries himself in such a a fine way that it made a lot of people go, oh, wait a minute. You know, and, and, you know, it I, I don't. I, I could get off on a rant on this, and I've, I think I've already had my rant for the evening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other thing, though, with this this Fantastic Four story, Stan Lee could have easily put you know a bunch of shown off talking and stuff like that, like they normally did. He treated it the same way. Both men were on the same wavelength, and they they did it they they did it quite well. Um, What's well, surprising? It's not in this issue, but there were. Like I said, I read these in collections, but there were several stories after that where the Fantastic Four were, you know, doing other stuff, and they were in trouble. They didn't know how to get out of it, and Reed Richards made a contact, and next thing you know, some some flying device came by and saved them. What happened is he contacted Prince T'Challa and asked for help, and Prince T'Challa had his people set something up, flew it out there, took care of them, and I'm thinking... So basically, you have white white superheroes asking an African nation for help, and they do it. I mean, it wasn't condescending, nothing but respect, and it's continued on. And we talked in a past episode about the, the Black Panther movie, and Rook said I need to see it. I did see it, and I thought it was great. I really loved how they showed the African cultures, you know, their own culture, but it was based on on existing African civilizations. Yeah, I love yeah. I loved all the characters in it. What I didn't like was that Prince T'Challa got lost to a thug. You know, um, that wouldn't happen. I understand it was a plot device, but that guy he lost to, I think, honestly, he wouldn't lose to this. So anyway, that's. <laughs> That's my thing. Um, the, yeah, the, you know, plot devices are there to move story along and things like this. <laughs> and, you know. That's one part of the movie I lost. Um, anyway, all right. Well, moving on. Again, I'm I'm careful to bring this up to <laughs> <laughs> more mainstream comics. How I've got another mainstream uh, comic, but it's based on old mainstream comics. Um. Which I normally wouldn't like, but I read about this online, 
And so I contacted my comic shop and says, I want this, put it in my pull list. It's called um, Danger Street. Danger Street from by DC. Tom King. Now, what surprised me, it had Atlas Unconquered, who you and I have talked about. An old, it's an old Jack Kirby story, yeah. one issue. Um, this is written by Tom King, which is an extremely popular writer. Now, he wrote a, a Mr. Miracle miniseries, a tw- or a 12-issue series, that um, I got. And I got some of our listeners to buy it, and some of our listeners <laughs> were writing me about, I can't believe I bought this. Thanks a lot. Um, I enjoyed the series. <laughs> but um, I enjoyed the series. But what caught me was the artwork. One, I like Mr. Miracle. He's one of my favorite Jack Kirby creators. Big Barda, I think, is one of Jack Kirby's greatest greatest designs and characters. I, I just thought she's the greatest. You know, I like Mr. Miracle. He was my favorite of all of his fourth world stuff. And um, anyway, I bought them. Everybody kept going on about the comic. I liked it, okay, but to me, even when I say I liked it, it kind of spun around and went nowhere. You know, when it was finished, I thought, well, really, that's it. Um, Tom King's written Batman, which we've had guests come on the show and talk about. They loved it. I've never read them, any of his Batman work. Um, he wrote, um, I think it was a strange adventures and I'm trying to think I, I've got the first issue of that. Cause again, I like the artwork, but I didn't like it enough to buy any of the other ones. So, you know, anyway, danger street, when they're showing it, there was an interview with Tom King in 19, I think 73 or 74 DC comics started a series of comics called First Issue Special. This is when fandom became a thing and everybody started realizing you're putting everything in plastic bags. You know, the the price guide was around. But anyway, it, um, it started changing. Well, they started realizing everybody's buying first issues all the time. Yeah, I'm guilty of that one. No. You know, I was always told to do that. Uh, I did some. I bought some issues that I probably wouldn't have bought, you know, it, when I was a kid. But I didn't really adhere to it if I didn't want to get the issue. But the first issue special, the first one was Atlas Unconquered, which I thought was just terrific. Um, Jack Kirby did three. He did the Dingbats at Danger Street, which was supposed to be another kid gang. He did uh, Manhunter, which, again, is one I love dearly. Uh, Dingbats, I thought, was pretty bad, honestly. <laughs> but um, My Grill's Warlord was one of those first issues, and that's the only one that got its own series. There was another one, Starman, which is an old DC Golden Age hero, and this one was a blue-skinned alien. Mike Volsberg drew it. Um, the, the writer, I'll have it on the blog, but he was a popular comics writer that I guess was just starting out at the time. But that issue really got me. It had a lot of sympathy and pathos to it. And um, 
but there was a bunch of other ones. There was a, one I never bought called Lady Cop. There was about a a blonde female police officer when they didn't exist at the time, or were just starting. Um, I'm trying to think of, oh, Dr. Fate was one of them. Uh, Martin Pascal and um, Walt Simonson drew it. Um, there was a whole handful of these books. There was one called The Green Team, which I never touched, which is about a bunch of teenage millionaires or kid millionaires. There was, um, what was it? There was one my cousin had called The Outsiders. Again, it was one I'd never touch. Anyway, Tom King said he was never aware of these. It somehow it came to his attention. And there's all these characters that, well, you know, Atlas was in that Mike Allred series, Bug. But he didn't know about the other ones. So anyway, he's writing this series and he's tying them all in together. It starts out with Lady Cop and she's, you know, somehow looking out for the, the dingbats. Um, Warlord, Starman, and Metamorpho. That was another one. Metamorpho was one of the first issue specials. But they're kind of teamed up and they get Dr. Fate's helmet. Um, Creeper was another one. <laughs> But they're all tying together, and I'll be honest, there's been two issues out. I've enjoyed myself. Uh, I don't know where this is going to go on. Um, some pretty horrific things have already happened in the first couple of issues. <laughs> but somehow it ties into Dr. Fate's helmet. Metamorpho gives one of his arms to get it. And then, um, anyway, I'm enjoying these immensely. Um so this is a current run book then yeah it just came out i again i told my my comic shop to add on my pull list the two issues that come out um tom king said he got them um i don't know i guess they gave him copies to read and then um i think they're going to come out with a, a first issue special collection nice but some of them are beautiful um Two of the Jack Kirby's, I still have in my collection, Atlas and uh, Manhunter, two of my favorite comics. Starman, I absolutely loved it. It was just one issue. There was an invasion of these blue people he was trying to stop, came to Earth, couldn't speak English, getting beat up everywhere. And um, he, um, it just ended, and you think, oh, man, what happened? Um, Dr. Fate. Again, Walt Simonson and Marty Pascal put out. Those were nice. Um, Metamorpho, I think uh, Ramona Freighton drew that one. There, there were some good ones. Green Team, I couldn't. Outsiders, I couldn't touch. Um, some of them weren't very good, but some of them were great. They were trying to do like Showcase in the 60s, I guess even the 50s. Yeah. The first issue of Showcase was the Barry Allen Flash. When DC started bringing back their superheroes, the difference in showcase was they put it out and they had a run i don't know how many issues but several issues of that character and if it did well they put it out as a regular series metal men came out that way um uh, what yeah, was but it was a testing ground for them to be able to see if it was a viable property yeah doom patrol uh suicide squad all that stuff cave carson all that stuff came out of showcase and they remember it but the problem is first issue special it was just one issue, and it didn't look like they really had any intention except Warlord, which was already getting his own series anyway. But nevertheless, this one, 
I, I'm kind of happy when I go to the store and it's in my box. Um, so when Merck complains about retreads, of comics, <laughs> well, you know who's buying them. <laughs> oh man! Hey, listen, I, I've, I've got my. I've got my thing, you know, and you know, I, I like I like the originalness of Kickstarter, the the wild west of yes. Kickstarter. Anything goes out there, and you know, there's obviously an audience for it, as there's mm-hmm. obviously an audience for mainstream comics, you know, and that's what I love about this hobby, man. It's we can all coexist in the same space. I agree. And I, Tie it back to my original rant. Third-party publishers can exist in the same space as D and D. It probably <laughs> keeps interest in in Dungeons and Dragons. I think if the third-party stuff didn't exist, I think that would just kind of dry all oh, away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always something innovative and new coming out of like Griffin Saddlebag or DM Dave, you know, the, these are our people who are producing amazing content. And like I said, a lot of times they'll give you free bits, you know, so everybody just breathe, relax and coexist. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I guess that's going to tie us all up. Um, if you like to draw, we're always looking for comic, fake comic book covers to use on the Facebook page and the Facebook group. Um, I've been fortunate because a lot of people have sent them in, so I've been rotating them, and it's been a great, great thing to have. But I'm starting to get nervous because they're starting to, you know, um, I started pestering some people to do them, so could I have some more? I gave you a bunch. I know. <laughs> I need some more. <laughs> I so need anyway, more. If you're sitting on the fence thinking, you know, I might do one sometime, do us a solid, do one. Um, I can't stress, every time I've gotten these, people say, I don't know if you're going to like them. Well, it's it comes from part of you. It comes from your heart. It comes from your soul. We'll like them. Um, and I can and even... We credit you. We yeah. give you the credit, baby. What I, I really like to do, we can't pay you for these. We're asking you for work for free. And I, that one, I'm sorry. We don't have any money. We don't make money on the show. But if you do send it and you allow us to, we'll add it to the cover gallery of the blog. And if you have a any kind of blog or website or Instagram, send us the link to that and we'll put that on there. So if people can see your pages and they can even go to your site itself. Um, nice. And sometimes the site doesn't even have drawings. It just has pictures of you or your friends or things you like and your thoughts. Um, people enjoy these. Um, I can also, a lot of times I've even reformatted the, the drawings for... Um, the cover, if you got something you would like to use for a cover, I can a lot of times reformat it for you. If you're any kind of singer, musician, performance artist, if you can put on the MP3, I never say that right, uh, we'd like to use them in music break as we had today. Uh, same thing, people always say, I don't know if you're gonna like it. Uh, the the few I've gotten, I've everybody's really enjoyed. So don't be afraid, send something in. Uh, we also have t-shirt. It's on the sidebar under merchandise. We have three t-shirts, actually. It's not to make us rich. It's just to help us pay the the, why can't I ever say this? It helps us pay the hosting fees that come up every year. Anyway, uh, listen to the show, wear the shirt. Rook? Everybody, go to our website, bunchofdorks.com. Click on that Cyclops. 
you'll find examples of all the stuff we've talked about, links to articles, links to the writers, artists, all the good stuff is there for you to check out. But until next time, read more comics. comics.